Hi, it's uh, Paul and Margaret Toscano, and in this session we're going to be talking about priesthood uh, in the Mormon context, mainly. And uh, uh, I think I'm going to be mostly interviewing Margaret about this subject. Um, and so I'll begin with some questions, and then we'll get into a discussion, if that's okay. Okay, although uh, I do want it to be a discussion, not just an interview. But the, the, the big question that I have to start out with is, is really, for me, the foundational question about priesthood, and that is, what is it? I mean, it has a corporate dimension, and it has a spiritual dimension, I suppose, but I'm really more interested in the spiritual than the corporate dimension. So maybe you could address that question about what is priesthood in the Mormon context? Well, and obviously the corporate and spiritual get both conflated, and I think they overlap. Even if you believe in one or both of them, they end up overlapping. So in the church, you often hear the phrase, um, the priesthood is the power of God. But what does that mean? And in the church context, that usually means that it's a sort of authority to act in God's name, right? To use God's power. But your question, to go back to your initial question, for me, when I study um, all the different texts about priesthood, what I think the essence of priesthood is, is that it is connected to the power of God, but that this is a, uh, an actual power. It's not just simply authority, like the authority you would have if you have an office in the government or in some kind of structure, right? but it's actually a power that, that is in the universe. And to me, that is an absolutely essential thing to understand if you're trying to figure out how priesthood works and why it should work in the way it does. So for me, it goes back to the fact that if you look at the nature of God, that God is a being, according to Mormon theology, who is both a person but who also has this glory or power that emanates out from God and that permeates everything in the universe. So it is a, it's, it's not just a kind of concept, but I would see it as a real force, physical, metaphysical, you know, however you want to define that. And it is, it's light, it's life, it's beauty, it's truth, it's, a substance, I would say it's an actual substance that permeates the, the universe and that, that in a sense it's like sunlight. In Doctrine and Covenants 88 um, it's defined in that way, that there is this power or light that emanates from God, and I would say God male and female, and permeates the whole universe and is the thing that keeps things alive. Um, and that's the power of the priesthood. And that's the, that is sort of, to me, the essence of what priesthood is. Let me interrupt you just okay. for a second, because I, I want to distinguish. It, the, the, the priesthood acting, you know, the authority to teach a Sunday school class is a corporate authority. Right. The authority to count the fast offerings and turn them in at the end of the Sunday is a corporate authority. Mm -hmm. The power to heal the sick is what you're talking about. But I'm talking about something bigger than that. The power to raise the dead, the power to create worlds, the power to be in and through all things and have the mind of God that permeates all things is the kind of power you're talking about. Well, that's more about. what I'm talking about. But 
I think it's interesting that usually when we think about corporate power versus spiritual, corporate priesthood power versus spiritual priesthood power in the church, we're thinking of church offices and duties versus spiritual gifts. Charismatic Charismatic gifts, gifts like healing and blessing and prophesying and those kinds of things, which are really that. But I'm actually talking about something even more fundamental because I would say, and in this, to me this is crucial because this power that I'm defining as priesthood, which emanates from God and goes throughout the whole universe, is available to everybody. And it's what kind of makes life possible. That all of the, I think it's just like sunlight again or rain, that these come down and it doesn't matter whether you're good or bad, this kind of power you know, the power to act, the power to, uh, to create. To choose. To choose. To think. Yeah, I think all of these are connected to it. Mm -hmm. To choose, to think, to create, to love. Uh, all of this is available, and any human being, because of the agency that we're given, you can open yourself up to receive, um, you know, the good things that are out there in the universe, and you both benefit yourself and you benefit others. And in this sense, I, from my perspective, I believe in both a priesthood of all believers, but also even a priesthood of unbelievers, that I don't think you have to believe in God to receive the sort of gifts of the universe that allow you to act and create, and that this is sort of a free thing that's there that you can use for good or ill. And, well, and that's think, also true. I, there's a statement in the scripture about what Christ says, I am the light of the world. Right. Which is an extraordinary statement. But if you take it at, at its face value. More than a metaphor. More than a metaphor. Right. That you take the light to be this, this uh, cosmic, supernatural, divine power that permeates and is in and through all things. And Christ says, I am the light of the world. It's also true, the, if you take that equation and turn it around, the light of the world is Christ. So many people can tap into this light of the world and they have Christ with them, but they would not know it by having the name of Christ. In other words, I believe that, that like you say, there's a priesthood of unbelievers, mm -hmm. there's a priesthood of agnostics. And, in other words, I think any person whose soul reaches out and, and is able to somehow connect with and augment this, this power that you're talking about, the power of imagination, of consciousness, of love, of spirituality, beauty, of truth, beauty of... right. And, illumination. Uh, right. And gets this in them, that's Christ in them. And right. they're or the divine. However, if you're going out of Christianity, right? Yes, but Christ says, I am the light of the right. world. So and we are Christians. And we are Christians. So from a Christian point of view, a person who's tapped into the, that, whether they have recognized Christ or not, is a person who is connected to Christ. Because he says, I'm the light of the world. The light of the world is that is that is Christ. It doesn't matter whether you're a Buddhist, whether you're in some Hindu or a Muslim or a Protestant, a Catholic, a Jew, it doesn't really matter. That light is available to everyone. Right, that's what I would argue. To me, that's the essence of priesthood. But then the question arises, and I, oh, I suppose you're supposed to be interviewing me. Yeah, but go ahead. Okay, but I this to me is the next question. So if this light is available to everybody, um, then why have priesthood or you know why have priesthood offices? Why have priesthood ordination? You know having ordinances that are connected with it. Why have a priesthood order? 
So, in other words, does that inevitably just lead to bad uses of it? Because, of course, I think that a lot of people will say, well, I believe in the spiritual dimension of priesthood, but I don't believe in it in any kind of institutional setting because it seems like it always becomes hierarchical and, you know, where you want to control, like DNC um, 121 says. Yes, well, I think priesthood institutionalized does raise the danger of corruption, but it also, I think, augments the possibility to do good simultaneously. So I think that, yeah, you can, you can, have, you can be a hermit and have the priesthood and be tapped into the spirit of God, the light of God, but you can also be trying to reach out to people that that can happen when a person does yeah, it by you themselves. To, you don't right. have to be part of anything. Um, but when you do get together, it is inevitable that there's going to be conflicts about what it is that we're all doing and disagreements about it. I think every organization I've been in that had any religious, uh, you know, agenda, there's always a struggle to know what what the heck are we doing? I mean, where right. where are we going with this? And I think that's inevitable. I mean, the cross casts a shadow, and the shadow of the cross is works. It's always what works do we do? What, where, what, who gets to be in charge? What's happening? And and I think that the danger is that you know we're going. It's like at the Council of Jerusalem that we read about in the Book of the Acts in the New Testament. There's a big fight about whether. Christianity was a subset of Judaism or a separate religion and whether the Gentiles needed to be Jews before they could be Christians. It, it, that always happens. And it's inevitable that in any group of Christians or any other, there's going to be disagreements because ultimately we all have different perceptions and backgrounds and experiences that we bring to it. And that's why I think foundationally the love of God is what's got to be at the root of that core understanding of the group, there's got to be room for, in other words, they can't adopt the policy of purity by exclusion. You can't start the horrible syndrome of throwing people out because they're the last ones in the lifeboat or because they have a different view. Uh, we have to kind of try to bring, I mean, there is, I mean, if people are blowing up chapels and molesting children, naturally, you have to, you have to stop that. But if people just have disagreements about what is our belief structure, I think that's inherent in any kind of organized religious effort. And of course, in any closed system, as uh, I think it was Frederick Augustus von Hayek who brought this out, the ruthless rise to the top. The most ruthless people tend to rise to the top of closed organizations. And that has a tendency to corrupt the organization. So. There has to be checks and balances within the religious. Well, and I think, yeah, there has to be the checks and balances. I'm sorry, I No, no, you're not in But the, I think that this is one of the big arguments against priesthood structure, where people say, well, again, I believe in the spiritual power, but I don't like the institutional aspect of it. Because as soon as you have any kind of a, uh, a status, which priesthood can be, that it seems like you're going to lead to elitist groups, and certainly that has happened in Mormonism. I mean, on the one hand, um, you have in Mormonism this idea of a lay priesthood where everybody is supposed to have priesthood. Now, we need to get to the gender question, right? But 
Well, let's say but, all the men have the priesthood. Yeah, just even to if start we start with, with that, and that means all... nobody has it. That because the men can't do anything. You can be a bishop, can't do anything unless you're the bishop of a ward. You can be have been a stake president, but unless you're in an, a, a stake presidency at the time, you have really no authority unless unless you're actively in a corporate office of the church. This this is really the same as saying every. Everybody has priesthood, all the men have priesthood, but really nobody has it except those people that are in the line authority, which I feel is a corruption of the concept of priesthood, and it's a corporate corruption. I agree, but... And the I women mean, are completely argue, out. Right, well, we're <laughs> going to come back to the women. But if you're just talking in terms of men, I mean, you could say that it's a step up if you acknowledge that everybody has access to this priesthood power and that you should in fact be a community of believers where everybody has gifts that should be used for the community and that there should be common consent, which is a Doctrine and Covenants idea, although we don't really have it in the church right now, where you know we're gonna have disagreements, but we have to have some way of, of dealing with those, but everybody's opinion matters. And that obviously is not what we have in the church today. We have the reverse. No, and in fact, well, you can though blame Joseph Smith for both because Joseph Smith both introduced the notion of everybody being uh, a priesthood holder, all the men, and I think all the women too. I think he introduced both. But also you can say that he reinforced hierarchy. And of, church, of course, the church has clung to the part of the hierarchy and have sort of dismissed anything that would lead toward common consent, which would be more of a democratic body of priesthood believers where everybody's vote and spiritual gifts matter, which for me is the ideal. Well, and look, if you take, it's true that Joseph Smith introduced a kind of hierarchy. He also did many things to subvert that hierarchy simultaneously. Yeah. Yes. Brigham Young was the guy who insisted upon seniority in the Council of the Twelve. He even reversed the seniority, get rid of Orson Pratt as the next possible president of the church, and got John Taylor in that, and we didn't like either. But because Brigham Young had a streak of thuggery in him that could not be removed even by the presence of Jesus Christ himself. <laughs> That's my view. You can take it if you don't like it, forget it. But the reality is, right now, in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, they line up in order of seniority so that if a senior member of the Twelve, let's say uh, I'm the senior member of the Twelve and you're junior, I have an opinion, you have to subordinate your opinion to my opinion. And they do that all the way down the line. So it's not like we have a quorum of the Twelve running the church. What we have is senior members over junior members and you know, highest senior members get a lot of privilege and the junior members follow. Well, this is directly repugnant to the teachings of Jesus when he was on earth. Well, he I'm said, not... you should not call your, each other masters. I'm your master, you're all in it together and you need to, but, and I'm sure they discuss things, but in fact, this seniority system is absolute poison to the idea that you're talking about, which is the charismatic priesthood, uh, receiving spiritual gifts and making them available to the community of the saints on an equal basis. Mm -hmm. That that this seniority system poisons that. It's entirely. It's like peeing in the soup. It is the worst possible thing that could have developed, and that and that's why I have often said that the the 
First Presidency of the Twelve in the modern Mormon Church has more in common with the Sanhedrin than they do with the primitive apostles under Jesus. Well, and I say amen to the priesthood of those men. Because in fact, the way that the present structure works, it really is reenacting every negative thing that is listed in DNC 121, that people then use the priesthood to promote hierarchy, to cover their sins, to gratify their, gratify their pride, because that's the nature of hierarchy. And unfortunately, I think, and I'm not criticizing anybody individually, and because I don't, I'm not in a place to judge anybody's place before God or what their spirituality is, but I think the present structure of the church really promotes the bad use of the priesthood because it promotes a system where people are not using their spiritual gifts, they're not using their own discernment, um, but they're required to, um, to try to figure out, to anticipate counsel, as they often say. They're, they're required to try to feel out, you know, where is the wind blowing in terms of yeah. what the brethren want, and if I want to succeed in the system, I have to go along with what the brethren want. The senior and, brethren. Right, the senior brethren want, and it's by that means that I will be able to, you know, use my priesthood, because as you said, I think the sad thing also in the church right now is not simply this hierarchy and this kind of pipeline of priesthood that I think is very destructive, but also it discourages thinking about priesthood in a spiritual way where you have the capacity to use it in many different contexts because the current leaders want you to get permission for everything. Yeah. And that's not the way I think it should be. Oh, I, I, think, I think that... I think that, in, the, in the actual corporate management of the church now, there's at every level, councils get together, they talk about different aspects of their work, but they can't do anything until it goes up and up and up. And then where do they get to? They have to get to the first presidency. And Thomas Monson is probably not managing the church anymore, from what I understand. Uh, it's basically uh, President Eyring and President Uchtdorf. And, and the senior members, and the senior of, the members of the 12. Right. And, and this creates a kind of gridlock and, and it's no wonder that the church, uh, you know, when people say they're very good managers, I think they're very poor managers. It's a Soviet management system that we have. And, uh, and it doesn't work very well. And, and the fear is that if they, if they, you know, they do not follow Joseph Smith's statement to teach them correct principles and let them govern themselves. That's what Joseph Smith said about the saints. Right. What we do is we teach them bad principles, essentially, <laughs> and then we govern the hell out of them. And that is the opposite of, the, right. of, the, of what Joseph Smith said. And I find this extremely troubling, and you can hear my voice going up, because I, I <laughs> yes, believe- you're beginning to rant. I'm beginning to rant, so I'll stop for a minute. <laughs> no, you well, actually, I want to take us I'm back to- I'm very good to, at ranting. I know, you are, I'm and excellent. you're very funny yeah. when you're ranting. But I want to take us back to the whole issue of the purpose of the priesthood. Because, again, it seems like, because of the, the fact that as soon as you get something institutionalized that it seems to go corrupt, you have to say, well, let's just get rid of it. We're yeah. back to that. Let's get rid of it. So what is the purpose of the priesthood? And I think that when I look at the purpose of the priesthood, why have it anyway if it's just this, these gifts that are available to all? Well, for me, the purpose of the priesthood, 
the purpose of the priesthood has to be connected to the purpose of the gospel. Yes. That you if you if you divorce the priesthood from what, how the gospel of Christ is supposed to function in the church, that you're always going to get a distortion. Mm -hmm. And the purpose of the gospel, I mean, we could say it in many ways, but sort of the essence of it is that you want to transform individuals. That you're trying to bring about, you know, taking any human being and transforming them in a way that allows them to reach their full potential to become like God. And, and so if you look at the basic principles of the gospel, they're all about spiritual transformation. The idea of a spiritual rebirth, where um, you, your, your life is, is enhanced by the infusion of accepting the divine power of Christ to, to uh, remake you. Mm -hmm. And which is not, which I think in terms of Mormon theology is very much connected to your own uh, agency and your desire to uh, to be a better person and to uh, and to change the different things about yourself that you don't like. Um, so it's very much about transformation and I see the gospel is about the individual transformation so that you have you're on a new footing and that the priesthood is a continuation of that where you're receiving the Spirit of God to transform you eventually into a mature spiritual being who uses her spiritual gifts that she's been given through the power of God that she's receiving to transform her eventually into the image of God. The scripture says we do not know yet what we'll be like, but when we see him, and I would add her, we will know that we're like them because we've been transformed. And so the priesthood is part of a continuum of the spiritual transformation. I, I want to add to that one point, and, or maybe just to make it so that I use a metaphor I can grab my mind around, and that is, it seems to me like being a saint and being a priest or priestess are really two sides of the same gospel coin. A saint is someone who has received the Spirit of God and is transformed. A priest or priestess is somebody who is attempting to transmit the power of God to someone else, to beget them spiritually. One, a saint is a begotten, the priest is a, trying to beget someone in the name of Christ to capture them, be fishers of men, to bring them into the fold of God. So it really it's like a chicken and the egg. I mean, mm -hmm. people bring that up and I say, well, when, when a chicken has eggs in it. Right, I mean, mm -hmm. little ovaries and things, right. and and within the DNA of the chicken, I mean, of the eggs is is another chicken, but it's in coded form. I mean, you can't get a chicken without eggs, and you can't get eggs without some kind of coding of the chicken in it. And that's the same with the priesthood and the gospel. In other words, the purpose of the gospel is to beget people unto Christ, to make them children of Christ, whether they know it or not. You know, I, we talked about that before, and. Uh, and uh, the purpose of the, that light, as it grows in them, it, it, it gives them desires to serve, and the priesthood becomes a mechanism of being able to provide that service so that that light, you know, Jesus says, don't put it under a bushel, but let it shine. And that priesthood is shining that light out to others. I mean, that's how I see the connection between the gospel and the priesthood in my simple way. 
Um, no, and I, I agree with you. I mean, in this sense, I mean, I would say I was talking more in terms of sort of the spiritual journey of the individual. That's right. That the gospel is sort of the beginning of the journey, and then in your, as you are become spiritually mature, right. the, the priesthood is really about maturing you, but we're not isolated, we're connected to other people. Right. And I think that when you receive good gifts, that you have a desire to give them out to others. And in fact, this is one of my arguments for why women have to have, be part of the priesthood in the church, that you know, if you have all of these talents and gifts and you have nowhere to use them, then it can be very frustrating. And in a sense, those gifts are, they're lost, right? I mean, if you're a teacher, you're a talented teacher, and you have no classroom, you have no pupils, right? Mm. Then you really have no place to use that gift that you're given. And I, I, so I totally agree with you. It's the desire that you have then to give it to others. But if you're in a kind of rigid, hierarchical structure, that also makes that very difficult. Well, they'd argue that you know women can teach, but that's not. They can't baptize. They can't administer the powers of heaven through the ordinances, and they can't sit in the apostolic quorums. That's the most important one. They can't sit in the 70 or the apostles or the first presidency. And so those men are basically arrested in their adolescence, in my view. The leaders of the Mormon church are a, a coterie of arrested adolescents because they cannot accept the power and the grace of God as it comes through women. Well, and, 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 let me continue with okay, my, briefly okay. with my okay. insulting remark because <laughs> okay. I don't want to. You don't want to lose a chance to uh, insult no, them. No, and it's not. It's because yeah. I'm not insulting them. I'm warning them that the idea that they advance that women can't hold the priesthood or can't be apostles is because Jesus didn't call them are misreading the New Testament. The women who went to the tomb were the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. They were the ones who told the apostles. They were the apostles to the apostles. Women in that time were not allowed to be witnesses of anything under the Mosaic Law. They couldn't witness anything. Yes, they witnessed this thing. And they uh, went and told the apostles. When Matthias was called to replace Judas Iscariot, the, the two qualifications for his accession to the apostleship was that he had to have traveled with Jesus during his life, and two, he had to be a witness of the resurrection. And the women had that qualification. And the idea that there were only 12 apostles at the time, as, as, rather than a larger group, is also uh, untrue. There, there were other apostles. Jesus, in one of the witnesses, or one of the gospel uh, uh, texts, it says that he called 72 others, right? 70, mm -hmm. 70, and they called the 70. But there were 72 other apostles. Some, some of the texts reference the word apostles. And even in, in Joseph Smith's time, when he called... Brigham Young and Joseph Young. He called them both to be apostles, but he put Brigham Young in the Council of the Twelve, and he put Joseph Young as an apostle in the Seventy, because that was the other Seventy apostles. Uh, the, the, the idea of how we treat priesthood now and exclude women is one of the most serious blows ever inflicted upon the Mormon Church, was to reduce women to kind of menials uh, in the household of God. And I think it does violence to, uh, it entitles boys, it subverts the identity of and hurts girls, and ultimately it, it damages the church. And I think they've got to change that policy, and they, the quicker they do it, the better for them. 
Well, I obviously agree with you, Paul, and I'm also laughing because, of course, uh, you told me before we began this discussion that you were going to let me sort of do most of the talking. Oh, I bet. You, you were going to interview me, and you cannot help yourself. You get onto these rants. these rants. I have the gift of ranting. You have the gift of ranting, but it's okay uh, because I agree with everything you said, but. I want to say some more about the about ordaining women and why I think that this is so important. You know, you hear all of this discussion by church leaders now because of the ordained women movement mm -hmm. about how women are just as valuable as men, right? And that you know, you shouldn't you don't need to be ordained to the priesthood in order to be a valuable member of the Church of God. And I mean, on one level, that's true. Of course it's true. But on another level, practically speaking, it is not true at all. It is totally false. It's a lie. It's a lie. I agree with you. It's a lie. Because the ability to function within the LDS community is totally connected to priesthood in the church. Priesthood, because we have a lay priesthood, even though it's a hierarchical lay priesthood, but because there is this priesthood structure, priesthood controls everything. Money. It controls money, it controls doctrine, it controls the how things are set up on every single level, you know, whatever we're talking about, it priesthood and priesthood offices control, including the ability to use spiritual gifts. Yes, anybody in the privacy of their own home can use the priesthood and can give blessings. You don't have to ask permission. But if you go outside your four walls, and of course with now with all our technology, you're not even private within your home, right? Then you can get in trouble in the church if you don't you know, ask permission. So because of the way the church is structured, Women being excluded from priesthood absolutely makes them second-class citizens and makes them subordinate to men in every way. And, the and fact, it doesn't matter. Yes. It does not matter what the leaders say. Right. You know how much you know they praise the women or say it's not true. The actual everyday functioning and practical way that things operate subordinates women and really silences their voices so that they are not able to um, function in the church and contribute in the same way as men. Now, I want to go back. You were using the example of, you were bringing up the example of Jesus and the time of Jesus to say that the church has used the 12 apostles and the structure of the original church to be an argument for why we can't ordain women. Yeah. And historically, that just doesn't hold up. I know. It's not just simply because of the New Testament, although I completely agree with your reading of the New Testament, but if you look historically of documents of early Christianity, women functioned in, um, they functioned in the household churches of Christianity in leadership positions, which had to be priesthood offices. And we have archeological evidence of women being called bishops, uh, in the New Testament, in Romans, a woman is called an apostle. Junia. Junia. 
there's just so much evidence, so it doesn't hold up. And of course, in Mormonism, I have always argued that Mormonism has more of a justification for ordaining women than any other group in sort of the Western religions right now, because we can use Christianity, we can use Judaism, anything positive there that justifies the ordination of women, we can use. But then we have these extremely strong statements of Joseph Smith ah, yes. in his uh, discourses to the Relief Society in 1842, where he told them that he was going to make them a kingdom of priests, where he told them that he wanted them to move to, uh, in accordance with the ancient priesthood. He was going to turn the keys. And he was going to turn the keys to them. Right. And of course, the term keys is very important in Mormonism because it has to do with, with, um, with management and also with leadership um, position. So there's just so much evidence in Mormonism. But of course, what we see happening right now the more that people like me and Mike Quinn and others have documented all of this evidence, then what happens is the leaders begin to talk in ways where they will sort of concede one point and then they take it away with another. So just the example is that now, it used to be that they would say that women have the blessings of the priesthood, but they don't have the offices or the power or the keys or the authority. Now, they have conceded that women have some authority when they function in the church calling, that they have the power because of the spirit, but they can't have keys and they can't have offices. So it's always, you know, we may concede something, but we're going to keep the rest of it away from you, which again, I see as abusive. It's really denying the power of God and the power of the priesthood. And, and not only that, it seems to me it's very hypocritical because uh, if the apostles were real, modern apostles were really serious about their qualifications for the apostleship, they would all have to be Jewish Galilean fishermen <laughs> in order to qualify, right? I mean, or a tax collector here and there. I mean, they do not qualify. They're all Northern Europeans, except I think for Bednar, who uh, goes back to Hungary and probably has Northern European ancestry. Why are a bunch of Northern European white middle-class males who live in the Harvard-Yale district of Salt Lake mostly, why do they get to run the church without the gifts of a bunch of other people? And why are they so assiduously dedicated to excommunicating anyone who challenges on them on this? Well, the answer seems to be obvious. Yeah, it's, it's to, because to they, keep power and control in their hands and out of the hands of anybody else. Yeah, and they're ruining the church because well, of, it and, is, and, and people it, are leaving. And droves, as 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 uh, uh, Marlon Jensen, who was then the historian of the church, said, they're leaving in droves. I mean, they had the Swedish crisis, where a bunch of 50% of the Swedish members left. I think they've had crises in other places where people find out about the history of the church and realize that it's been mismanaged. Uh, they need to lay down the rods of their office and they need to resign. Well, let me go back to women for a minute because the same kind of thing where, you know, any kind of positive evidence that we can give for why women should be ordained. And quite frankly, for me, it's the theological, spiritual evidence, which is the strongest. Yes. Because if you don't acknowledge the priesthood of women, if you don't include them within the structure of the church, you create 
a stratified system where women are at the bottom of everything and where women do not have full equality with men, which I think is so spiritually damaging to the community. So there's that. Separate but equal is never equal. It's never equal. So if we go back to the way in which they're always reinterpreting things to make sure that they exclude women and keep women in their place, this has also been done, of course, with the temple ceremony. So in addition to the statements of Joseph Smith uh, to, the, to the Nauvoo Relief Society, there, are, there is the whole um, endowment that is evidence that Joseph Smith intended women to have the fullness of the priesthood. Um, Mike Quinn, of course, documents this very well in his article in the Women Authority, and I've also written about this. But the, the sort of crux of it is that if you look at what happened in the 19th century, it's fairly obvious that Joseph Smith saw the endowment as an endowment of priesthood power, and that he didn't see this simply as sort of this spiritual thing, but he actually saw it as a, as, as a priesthood that actually superseded the priesthood that was already in the church. And that he said, I intend to make of this society, talking to the Relief Society, a kingdom of priests and the men uh, a kingdom of priests as well. The notion that you were going to have a whole society where everybody could speak in the name of the Lord. It was a different kind of vision of priesthood that we have now. So there's all of that evidence. But then what happened? And what is still happening, because now there are leaders who are saying, oh yeah, women do get some kind of a priesthood in the temple, but they still subordinate women because Brigham Young, and I agree with your estimation of him, that bully, he wanted to make sure that women didn't, you know, kind of get out of their place, that he and Heber C. Kimball changed the wording so that women are now anointed to be priestesses to their husbands, whereas there's evidence that the earlier wording was that they were supposed to be priestesses to God. In other words, they had a full equality with men. And I think it's important to note that in the second anointing ceremony of Joseph and Emma, that they were both anointed to be to God, to, to God rather than you know, the subordination of the woman. And that was man. true of uh, Heber Kimball and Belate Kimball in their uh, second anointing. They were both anointed priest and priestess, he says. Uh, William Clayton, I think, made the note right. to God. And so this was changed, I think, in December of 1845 when Heber Kimball said, well, because he blamed women for the apostasy of some men. I'm not sure why that was true. Because of polygamy, I think. And then they said yeah. that they were going to change the wording. Well, they had no authority to change the... They have no more authority to change the ordinances of the temple then the Bishop of Carthage had to change baptism by immersion to baptism by sprinkling. I mean, they argue that that fact in the church, I've heard that argument made, right. but the leaders of the, I think one of the problems is that the, the apostles see themselves as superior to the gospel, that they believe they can change the gospel in its ordinances, when really, they, I don't believe they can. They, have, they are subject to the gospel and its ordinances and to the revelations of Joseph Smith. Well, one of the arguments I have, which is different from the ordinary liberal argument, is that the, the modern church has gone astray, not because it's, it, it, it's too conservative, but because it, it just simply refuses to follow the revelations. And as you pointed out, it seems to me that the, it seems to us that the leaders of the church 
have ignored most of Joseph Smith's revelations, but the one they cling to is that he got the priesthood and passed it on to them. That's the one revelation <laughs> that they really... They, they like that one They hold lot. fast to that one. Yeah. But they don't seem to be able to... Uh, you know, I think one of the signs that the, the Spirit is not with the church is just how boring their speeches are. And boredom is... Uh, how, do you, how can you make a religion that believes in the resurrection of the dead and that there is no hell and, and, and that... There's, you know, the, the physical bodies get resurrected and sex continues in the next life. This is a fairly interesting religious... And they make it very, very boring. They, um, well, it, amen to the spirit in those men, right? Yeah, in other that's words, what happens. Yeah, I, it's true. I want to touch two things before we run out of time. Um, the first one, I want to say emphatically that... I believe that women need to be ordained into the present structure of the church. And for that reason, I put up a profile on the Ordained Women's site, and I also participated in the two activities. However, I do not believe that simply ordaining women solves the kind of problems that we're talking about. It's the right and just and fair thing to do. Absolutely. And I do think it will help the church, you know, to, to, to make women, to bring women into the leadership of the church will change it and it will be a positive thing and the gifts of women will be able to be used on a, on a, a broader scale if we ordain women. So I absolutely believe in that. But I also want to say that for me, every time we talk, I have talked about ordaining women, I have also talked about critiquing the hierarchical structure of the priesthood that I think it's equally important to critique the way the priesthood is being used and the way it functions and the way it's structured right now in the church. Now this is not to say that there's not a lot of good that is being done because in fact I really admire the, the saints as a whole. I mean there's so many good people who try to do good within mm -hmm. their, their wards, their stakes, and many, many good men who use their priesthood offices for good, for good of other people. And I don't want to diminish that in any way. On the other hand, I think that we have to, as women, as a feminist who believes in women's ordination, I absolutely feel it's, ne it's necessary to critique the power structure of the church as really not, it is not functioning according the way, it's a structural problem, right? Yeah. It's a structural problem. It's not a matter of individuals. It's a matter of structure that is not it's functioning. It's systemic. It's a systemic problem, exactly. And I think that's an extremely important thing to do. And, 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 and as part of this, I would say that the notion that we're going to suddenly ordain women and then women will have to sort of gradually climb their way up into the hierarchy, I totally disagree with this. I mean, if I were king, queen for the day, right? For me, I would say, let's ordain all the women who want to be ordained, and we're immediately going to put women in every single council in the church. And that we have to totally revamp the whole priesthood structure and the way we think about it. Well, there was a quorum of anointed that in the last 18 months of Joseph Smith's life ran the church, and it consisted of men and women who had the second anointing. That was the model I think we should follow. I also said earlier, you know, that the brethren should resign their offices. Uh, I didn't get a chance to say they can also repent. 
<laughs> and, uh, and I don't mean repent in the personal sense, because probably any one of them is a better person than I am. But they need it's to systemic again. They need the to problem is systemic. Right. They need to repent of the power structure, which is not authorized by Scripture. And they need to get back to common consent and, and, and the law of consecration and stewardship updated in modern form and bringing all the gifts that are necessary. They're worried about, you know, the problems in the world. They're not going to be able to solve them unless the gifts of all the members are brought to bear within the church. And right now, it doesn't look like that's going to happen, but miracles have happened in the past and perhaps they can happen still. Well, and maybe, Are we done? well, I think I want to make one more statement, um, which really goes back to our initial discussion of what is priesthood. Um, sometimes people see spirituality or priesthood power as sort of a magic that, you know, you lay your hands on somebody's head and if you have real faith, they're going to be healed. And I don't think that that's how priesthood power works because priesthood power is not coercive. And I believe that priesthood power, when it's used by, when it flows through individuals and it's used, it always has a positive effect. And it's only magic in the sense that it brings life. But miracles don't always happen. That's true. The miracles of healing, the miracles of raising the dead, I don't think those are the real that's the real purpose of priesthood. The real purpose of priesthood is more about these inner transformations. Yeah. That's the kind of magic I believe in. The magic... Of replacing power with love. Of replacing power with love. That's really the purpose of the priesthood. And the love that allows each of us to bloom and use our spiritual gifts in a way that gives meaning to our lives and the meaning to lives of others around us. And that, that is what I would say would be the proper functioning of priesthood. And that's a good point to end on. I think so, too.